what it is and how it is done. A few years ago, a very few years ago, this happened. <laughs> but I confused it with this. <laughs> so I would ask questions. Right where you are sitting now. Hello and welcome to the uh, the dusty podcast, the one we haven't done for a while. It's covered in dust. Kim, can you just wipe the dust off that microphone a second? Yeah, yeah done. Uh, I, I, I felt we needed a break from doing City Now Radio. Um, I did not anticipate a hibernation. <laughs> A three-year break. A yeah, three-year break. A That's three the officially the longest sabbatical anyone ever has taken. Yeah, it's true. That's how you know. But we like it's how to, we don't roll. Yeah, it's how we don't roll. Yeah, we it's like how to remove uh, all motion. We like to. Um, we like to uh, get our beauty sleep. That's that's the way I like to see it. And it's working. Let's face it, for both of us. Yeah, it's. Uh, yeah, anyway, but yeah, it's. It, I, I've been talking for ages about bringing the show back, but I kind of wanted to bring it back on a show where we had someone pretty sort of special, if that makes sense. Not to I know, of... and I'm and I'm pleased to be with you, Ken. <laughs> yeah. Not, so, not uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome, Kim Wanet. No. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> As if you didn't know everything there was to know about me, anyway. Yeah. No. So yeah, I mean, um, so it's good to be back. Oh, we don't normally. I think we pay adverts at this point. Project Archivist, the podcast that talks about the weird, the wonderful, and the strange. Join us every week as your hosts, Rojan and Lobo, take a different look at the world around us through guest interviews, discussion, or taking a look at the week's weirdest news. Find us at www.projectarchivist.com, on iTunes in the podcast section, or on the Stitcher Android app. We'll talk about kind of scheduling for the show a bit, I think, after the interview we've got today. Um, our guest today is Crispin Hellion Glover, which is pretty cool. Um, known, I guess, sort of best known for his... He played George McFly in Back to the Future, and uh, he's in Charlie's Angels and a few other big films. But the reason I find him interesting is for his own self-funded work, which is just sort of very, very cool uh, art house kind of stuff. He makes a lot of art house cinema. He's released um, very, very cool very original books um yeah he's just and he tours his own films around the country he doesn't release them on dvd or anything like that he you know he, he wants people to sort of experience them as part of this sort of show that he's taking around and he's actually in the country at the moment and i spoke to him yesterday in person and, and we arranged an interview today um and yeah this is it so uh could you write the dust off that uh interval music kim yeah okay cool <laughs> okay right uh yes we'll see you after the interview
Uh, Crispin Glover, um, it's a great honour to have you on the show. Thanks so much for giving us some of your time. Yes, glad to be here. Um, as is custom on our show, um, I was wondering if you could give us a, a brief biography of yourself. Yeah, it's a funny thing. I, I, I'm, I'm not normally asked to do it, so I don't know. Uh, I'm not like uh, as prepared as perhaps I should be. <laughs> I don't know what's a good place to, to start or, or stop or how brief I would be. <laughs> I was born in uh, 1964, New York uh, City in New York, and uh, moved to Los Angeles when I was uh, relatively young with my mother and father. My mother retired as a dancer and actress uh, when I was born, and my father uh, still continues to act. Uh, and, uh, my parents are still married. Uh, I went to a small private school from age, uh, well, from first to ninth grade. Uh, I began acting professionally at age 13 under my own, uh, interest uh, in, in doing so. My father's, uh, as I said, an actor and mother retired as a dancer and actress. So I'd grown up around the, the business, uh, uh, I didn't work too much as uh, uh, under the age of 18, but started working a lot more in uh, film in particular uh, at age 18 and started uh, making my own feature films. Uh, uh, well, I started shooting uh, What Is It in 1996 and uh, premiered it in Sundance 2005 and the, its sequel, It Is Fine, Everything Is Fine, and in 2007, I've been been touring with those films ever since, which has changed my, my life quite a bit uh, in these last nine years. And I'm shooting the third feature film, which is not part three of what will be the trilogy currently, uh, which is a, uh, a film that I've been developing for many years for myself and my father to act, and it's the first time he and I have ever acted uh, together, and I uh, still touring with the films uh, and uh, acting in other people's uh, movies and uh, continuing to make my own films. So that's 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 my biography. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Um, right, I really want to talk in this interview mainly about your own films, um, and also I'd like to talk with you about the Czech Republic, if possible. Yeah. Um, because I think all of these things are really interesting and will be interesting to our listeners as well. Um, Good. Uh, so let's start off with what is it? There's a kind of a, a long history involved in it. I'd quite like to maybe go through that with you. Um, could you give us kind of like the background into the making of the film, you know, how it came about, um, and maybe we could talk about some of the the underlying, yeah. you know, themes within it. It's a, it's it's a, it's kind of a long and slightly confusing history because it uh, before I made what is it, there was a screenplay for a different feature that I was looking to get uh, uh, corporate uh, backing for uh, that initially started out where two young writers had approached me in 1996 with the screenplay uh, that they wanted me to act in. Uh, and it was the, around that time they had, I, I understood at the time that they had financial backing because they had made a monetary offer to me through my agents. And I read the script with that idea, but it was around that time that I had kind of felt like the next first time uh, corporately funded film director 
that I worked with that should be myself, I read the screenplay and there were things about it that I thought were interesting, but there were things about it that didn't quite work entirely. And, uh, for, for me, structurally or story-wise, and but I saw that there was a problem that could be solved by something within it, and I said to them I'd be interested in acting in the film if I could rework some of the concepts and direct it. They came and met with me to hear what my thoughts were, and uh, I let them know that the, there were a lot of different things, but the main thing I wanted to do is have a majority of the characters in the film to be played by actors with Down syndrome. They were okay with the concept, and they set about to rewriting the screenplay, and then David Lynch agreed to executive produce that for me to direct, which is a very nice thing for him to do. Uh, executive production can mean somebody puts money in, or they can be somebody that would lead to money coming in, which was what David Lynch was doing, which again was very nice. Mm-hmm. I went to one of the larger corporate uh, entities in Los Angeles at the time that uh, would fund so-called independent films and uh, they were interested I had a number of name actors that were interested in being it as well and uh, after a number of meetings and conversations they let me know that they were concerned about funding a film where a majority of the characters were played by actors with Down syndrome so it was decided I should write a short screenplay to promote this as a viable idea that we would shoot as a, like I say, a promotion for corporate interest to prove that it was, you know, viable to have a majority of the characters played by actors with Down syndrome. So I, I wrote a short 20 something page screenplay wherein um, all of the characters were to be played by actors with Down syndrome. And that screenplay, the short screenplay, was called What Is It? Mm. And when I edited it, we shot that in four days. When I edited it together, it became, well, it was... It took me about six months. I taught myself how to use Adobe Premiere. Again, this was 96, which is early adoption of uh, yeah. that for a long-form video. I, I remember calling on the tech support, letting them know that I was doing a making a long-form movie with their application with Adobe Premiere. And they said, oh, yeah, there's somebody out in... Idaho who's doing that as well. It was like that wasn't what people were doing at the time. Of course, it took so long. I had a very bad technical problem. And on top of I, I did more shooting when I started to, turning it into a feature. But by the time I finally premiered it in Sundance, <laughs> digital editing was no longer new. Yes. Uh, it, it, but when I adopted it, it really was. Yeah. In any case, so uh, uh I edited that together uh, in a six-month time period, and that short came in at 84 minutes. It was way, and which is longer even than the feature film is now. And I had, uh, I ended up shooting eight more days to those initial four days to turn it into the feature, so more than double. But I, I realized that it was too long for for what I had. But I realized with more work, I could turn it into a feature. And uh, over the next two and a half years, about, or two years, I, I shot some more footage, well, like I say, eight days more, and uh, continued to edit. Then there was a very bad technical problem. I, initially, I, my initial plan was to, it was shot on standard 16, uh, and now there, it was, there was a digital intermediate and blown up to a 35-millimeter print. Both of the features are 35-millimeter prints. And... Uh, uh, 
but my initial plan was that I was going to shoot on 16 and make a uh, a 16 millimeter print, which I would tour around with. In 96, there were still enough art house venues that had 16 millimeter projection that that seemed viable. It was good that I didn't do that. It was just a coincidence because there were some technical problems with what would be called opticals, now would be called digital effects, that um, there was something with the SMPTE time code that had been mislaid by the co- company that I'd hired to do it or had been somebody put me in contact with, and it really caused terrible problems for literally five years. And uh, then the digital intermediate ended up coming down in price in that time interim, and I was finally able to do the digital intermediate, which led to the 35-millimeter print, which is still what I'm touring with. And, of course, now even 35-millimeter projection is uh, starting to be replaced with digital projection, which that's a whole other topic. In any (laughs) any case, um, what I more importantly realized when I turned the... short film into the feature was that it wasn't the the um it wasn't the the i realized that what the the corporation was questioning was not really the viability of having a majority of the characters played by actors with down syndrome but it was the concept itself of having a majority of the characters played by actors with Down syndrome, wherein those characters do not necessarily have Down syndrome. And that's a very important distinction, Mm -hmm. because you'll see corporate movies or television shows uh, where there are actors in it that have Down syndrome, but but, but inevitably the characters that they're playing will supposed to be characters that do themselves have Down syndrome. And and even that might not be very popular, but you will see that in corporately funded and distributed film or television. But what you will not see is you will not see actors with Down syndrome playing characters that do not necessarily have Down syndrome. And the reason that's an important distinction is because what corporations get concerned about, and this I came to the realization of in 96, was that the corporations are concerned that people might ask questions like, why are you doing this? Are you, are you making fun of these people? Are you taking advantage of these people? But, you know, which I had no intention or interest, still would, I, I would find that uninteresting personally to do mm. those things. And it wasn't on my mind at all. I, like I said, the concept was originally to solve a problem in a different screenplay. But I realized that another word for this is these kind of things that people can have questions or different feelings about what is right or wrong. That's another word for that is taboo. And so I realized I innately had this taboo subject within the structure of the film and there were all there were other things that had taboo elements even from when it was a, a, a short and i realized that this was something that corporations were concerned about in mass and i i think it's become increasingly apparent especially in the last few years that corporations are are uh, you know essentially propaganda machines mm-hmm. they do not want questioning audiences thoughtful informed people that could question 
the corporations essentially out of existence because corporations only exist legally because they're allowed to but there's an imbalance that's happening right now with control of corporations that does need to be addressed politically luckily i've seen in the last few years where there are uh, people that are realizing particularly specifically in the united states that an amendment needs to be passed uh, which hasn't happened in quite a long time in the U.S., that will control the monies that are going into politics because right now there's a legalized bribery in the U.S., and this ultimately leads to corporations being able to control laws, and that controls people's lives. And what I was reacting to way back in 96 is that it was controlling art, which is what I really care about. I, I kind of hate politics. I don't like mm -hmm. that stuff. I like art, but I, I don't like actors talking about politics. I just find it uninteresting. But when it affects art, it's something that I, I feel vitally concerned about. And uh, and so uh, there's a, I know this is a UK, uh, we're in the UK, but I, I might as well People listen to these things worldwide, and I, I do think it's a valid thing to sign up for. There are people that want to pass an amendment in the U.S. about getting uh, legalized bribery out out of politics in the U.S. Mm. Uh, with a, a new amendment, and the, people can go to wolf-pac.com and sign up for this. And it, Because if it doesn't happen, it, it, the corporate controls that are uh, allowed right now are, are going to get continually worse to a truly nightmarish proportion. It's already bad uh, and probably worse than people realize, mm. but it, it really, it's something that needs to be addressed. Anyhow, what is it was something that was reacting to this artfully back in 96? And I'm very glad to see that it's, it's coming forth uh, with, with political actions, even though it's seemingly unrelated. To me, I, it's exactly related. Mm -hmm. uh, now, it is fine. The second film, uh, I had actually read way back in 1986. It was written by a man who I ended up incorporating into What Is It, even though I initially, in the short film, he was not, uh, I didn't think of him as part of it. But I'd always, as soon as I read his screenplay in 1986, knew that I would be the person that would have to fund it. And uh, when I was expanding what is it into a feature, I realized there were thematic associations, probably uh, subconsciously or wh whatever you want, however you want to put it, in my mind that had been implanted by this screenplay I'd read way back in 1986. Uh, this is the second film in the, the trilogy now. It's called It Is Fine, Everything Is Fine. It was written by Stephen C. Stewart, who is a man that was born with a very severe case of cerebral palsy. Uh, Steve's, uh, when, when Steve's mother died when he was in his early 20s, he was placed into a nursing home where he really did not want to be. And the people that were taking care of him there, he couldn't get out for about ten, 10 years. And the people that were taking care of him there would derisively call him an MR, a mental retard, which is not a nice thing to say to anybody, but Steve was of normal intelligence and the emotional turmoil he must have gone through for that decade, I, I can't even begin to yeah, imagine. It must have been terrible. Must have been... Uh, of course. Mm. And when he got out of that uh, nursing home, uh, finally, uh, he, he wrote this screenplay in the style of a 1970s uh, T U.S. TV murder mystery movie of the week wherein he's the bad guy. And uh, this was something that was uh, really important to Steve. 
that he played a bad guy. If you think about it, and you see a corporately funded and distributed movie, and there's a character with a disability, basically that character is... Uh, is a benefactor to society. And of course, there's nothing wrong with that. There are plenty of people with disabilities who are benefactors to society. But what was important to Steve was that he was a person with a disability, emphasis on person mm -hmm. uh, with a disability, who wanted to play a bad guy. And people, people can have dark thoughts. Mm -hmm. And he was a person. Uh, with a disability, but a person who, who wanted to show that dark thoughts uh, exist in in that that community as well, and uh, he plays a very uh, very uh, well. He plays a real bad guy in this movie, and uh, there's something about the fact that he wrote it in this genre style, in the, this TV murder mystery movie of the week style, as opposed to a standard autobiography that makes certain truths of his. Uh, subconscious, I feel like, stand out in a very fascinating way. Yeah. I, I'm really proud of this movie. I, when the whole trilogy is done, I feel like this film will be the best film in the trilogy. But not only that, I feel like it'll be the best film I'll have anything to do with in my whole career. I'm, I'm very, uh, very passionate about the film. Yeah. And it has to do with an emotional catharsis that happens with Steve's character. Mm -hmm. uh, I hold that on a very high level. And I do not mean to dismiss what is it, because I'm very proud of that film as well. It's just that the emotional catharsis is a rare thing. And when that happens, it's something that is uh, is quite uh, important. Um, yeah, I mean, let's, let's go back to what is it a little bit. Um, yeah. Um, I was, when I, I seen the film myself, I saw it when you were in England last time um, at ATP and um i thought it was fantastic um it Good. was it was uh it, there was definitely within the film it did seem to be a kind of reaction to uh, what you call propaganda um and what i would say is uh, i think when a lot of people hear the word propaganda they think that people are talking about political propaganda you know uh, as in um uh like a uh, communist propaganda right. for example whereas exactly. when you talk about it i seem, i feel it's more about a kind of negative interaction between the media and the observer as it were well um, specifically when i'm using the word i mean you know propaganda is a fascinating subject mm -hmm. you 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 could you can call correctly what you and I are talking about right now, propaganda as well. But what, what I'm, uh, any, anybody that's essentially propagating an idea, trying to get an idea across, is using, is using propaganda, which isn't necessarily negative. There's a fascinating book written in 1928 by Edward Bernays of the title Propaganda. And this is more of the propaganda that I'm talking about. Edward Bernays was, is this, uh, the literal father of the public relations industry. He was the nephew of Sigmund Freud. The reason Sigmund Freud was brought over to the U.S. in the 1920s was because his nephew... Edward Bernays understood that his uncle's understanding of the human subconscious would be able to be utilized for U.S. media, government, and uh, academia to make the um, underclasses feel as though they were doing things that were good for themselves, where in fact they're serving the purposes of corporate industry. And this is essentially how the U.S. works. 
when I'm using the word propaganda, that's the kind of propaganda I'm talking about. It's the propaganda that is um, made for the essentially the working or underclasses uh, feel as though they're doing something good for themselves, but in fact they're serving corporate interests. And this is very carefully calculated and much more carefully calculated than people realize. And it goes all the way through all media that's corporately funded and distributed and uh, academia, which is corporately uh, sponsored. And of course, the U.S. government is, uh, and this is why that amendment I was talking about uh, earlier is so important, the U.S. government is sponsored legally now by corporations which put the politicians into the into the 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 power positions to make the laws which favor corporations and not people at large so all of these things need to be fully discussed and put out in the open and I do not see I see the discussion happening about politics it's true which is good what I don't see the discussion of is uh, about film and television and that what people are watching 99.999% of what people watch on a daily basis as entertainment is specific propaganda that was funded and distributed I mean if you're watching it basically it was probably distributed by corporations those corporations have to have a an approval of what the content is and again those corporations do not want intelligent thoughtful questioning populace that will realize that the reason the corporations enjoy their existence is because people are allowing it as soon as people realize that corporations need to serve people's interests those corporations will be strongly uh, controlled in a good way mm -hmm. uh, corporations don't have to be a bad thing they sh just what it means is a group of people coming together to do something which of course can be humans are social animals and and uh, they they do great things in order to to serve themselves often but unfortunately corpor the way corporations are currently existing they can they can uh, they can control uh, human existence in a way that is not necessarily good for the human beings and that that's what needs to be changed when corporations in the US initially were allowed I believe it was called something like a lock stock company and the corporations had to get permission and then they were they had a limited time that they were allowed to be in existence and then they were disbanded or they had to get permission to to make sure that they were continuing to do beneficial things to the the culture uh this is this is what needs to happen because it's uh, you know I, I mean at this point it seems like minor little things like you get you know passed around on the telephone you know or put on hold or press button number two and then button number three and then you're connected to the wrong person for AT&T or whatever it is but they, it's an abuse of time and 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 there's this huge amount of money that's made by those corporations which of course people are putting into but then your time is wasted instead of the more people being hired which would be good for the economy in general uh, it's uh, less people hired and more people put on hold on the telephone. I mean, that sounds like a minor nuisance, 
but it it's an it is a nuisance, and it's like I, it, what I'm talking about, of course, seems trivial, but it doesn't. It 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 gets much worse than that. It gets to the point where you know people are are put in in lines for whatever nefarious means uh, in 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 reality, as opposed to on a telephone, and it's. Uh, it will get worse unless it's truly confronted. So these kinds of discussions about understanding what propaganda is within within actual movie making, you know, movies use metaphors to make people feel comfortable with things. And I would say the main, it's not the only thing that's happening in U.S. Uh, films and media, but one of the main purposes I would say that's clear as to what the the US media is doing is to make the US population feel comfortable with the idea the propagandistic idea that the US is a policeman of the world that is right to essentially kill other people in other countries and of course that's uh, horrible <laughs> it's, it's a very very bad thing mm. and most people out of the united states are quite aware of it but many people in the united states are not aware of it mm. and they they the the, the amount of uh, uh, things that are going on well in news those those things are more evident but it happens in the in the storytelling and the storytelling of, of films and television the storytelling uses metaphors like uh, you know aliens evil aliens so so-called evil aliens coming in invading and then good good American families coming together and and fighting off aliens and killing aliens i mean it's kind of metaphorical what, in itself yeah it? what's the metaphor it's obvious what mm -hmm. the metaphor is it's uh, it's very scary it's very creepy and mm -hmm. and a lot of other countries don't make movies like that but the united states does often mm -hmm. and uh, but and and who are funding those big movies like that they're corporations corporations know that this is good for that concept of continuing to have a uh, people that will be sent off and, you know, killing, supposedly defending whatever, you know, yeah. but no, they're killing people and that's not good. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I know what you mean. If you go to the cinema these days, it's almost a surprise when you see a film that makes you question anything. And it's like, right. you know, it, it happens that, That's the other thing. That's the other thing that happens. You, you either have absolute... You have absolute uh, online propaganda. You know, I, I just gave an example of one thing, but there are multiple things. Or you have distraction, which is just basically stupidity. Mm -hmm. You know, something that will just make people not think about anything, which makes people... that, that They don't want people to be you know, thinking, going, well, why is this happening? Why, why, why are, why is my kid or my friend or these people going off to, to do this stuff in this place I don't know about? Instead of thinking about that, it's like there's just stuff that distracts. That's like, oh, well, I, I'm not thinking about this. I've just got this, you know, whatever thing to occupy my, my mind. And 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 I would say there's probably even more of that than there is of the actual online propaganda, the pointed propaganda. 
yeah. but they serve they serve uh, uh, essentially the same function. One says do do feel comfortable with this, and the other just says don't think about anything at all. Just be dumb and enjoy it. Mm. Yeah, I mean, one thing I uh, was thinking about last night when you were talking um, at the Q and A was. Do you think that there's a possibility that the reason we don't see people with, say, disabilities or with Down syndrome in films, be you know, portraying well, we, people... We, we, we will see people with mm. a Down syndrome. Oh, but you're finishing. Oh, yeah. You're continuing, yeah. Do you think that this... The reason is that the the media, the corporations have kind of created this kind of stereotype and are kind of perpetuating a, a kind of almost like a mutually reinforcing loop of prejudice and propaganda. It's kind of very strange. Uh, in in for, uh, of what though to what point to you know uh, of kind of alienating people with disabilities and, well well i think i i i wouldn't say you know the weird thing about propaganda also is that it's um i think what someone like you know that what we standardly think of propaganda is like you're saying earlier communism or or nazi germany or something which definitely did use very strong and pointed propaganda mm-hmm. but the the thing that isn't as talked about is every single political entity always uses propaganda including you know the US the UK what what have you but but um the f- interesting thing about it, I, I think it was, I don't know, some, some, somebody said somewhere, and I think it's just well known that if the best propagandists are people that do not think of what they're doing as that word, as propaganda, which is also why Edward Bernays is the father of the public relations industry. He realized that the word propaganda and why he was writing that book in 1928 was to rehabilitate the word because previous to World War One. Propaganda did not have a negative connotation, mm. but it did after World War One because basically because Americans were saying that Germans were using propaganda against their citizens mm. in order to have bad things happen. That was way back in World War One, and uh, so it had had a negative connotation from that. Edward Bernays realized he couldn't rehabilitate the word, so he came up with the word combination public relations to uh, replace propaganda. So anytime you hear public relations, just know it's the synonym. It means exactly the same thing. It is propaganda. But again, propaganda is complicated. The best propagandists are people that do not have a negative association with what they're saying. They think what they're doing is good because they've been raised with the propaganda. This is why academia has to be employed in a propagandistic system. It has to, people have to be taught, inculcated into this idea at a very young age. And that is how academia works. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, sure, you're taught interesting things in school as well, but you're taught to think very specific things about what is considered good, what is considered bad, what you should question, what you shouldn't question. And uh, people believe that. If you question certain things that might be genuinely questionable, you can get in a lot of trouble for it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so it's... Uh, it's uh, it, sometimes, you know, it's not as though there are committees. That's the part that people get really 
I think, confused about when they think about propaganda in a so-called democratic society, which the United States is not a functioning democracy, and, the, and getting money out of politics is something that could help to actually make it a functioning democracy. But it was never actually even designed as a functioning democracy. It was designed uh, as something to make people feel as though it was a functioning democracy, and that's what's propagated, but it isn't. It, it would be better if it was, I would assume. I mean, I'm, I'm not a political expert by any means, but I, I tend toward feeling like that would be helpful, especially when that's what people are taught in the U.S. as to what is happening, but mm -hmm. it, it isn't. Anyhow, uh, committees, people often think of propaganda as like what happened in Nazi Germany, where there were, there were committees that did dictate specifically what people were and were not supposed to do, and it was you know, met with essentially being killed if you didn't do those things, which of course is a very frightening uh, kind of use of propaganda, but maybe even more insidious is a kind of, uh, I mean, I, I, people could get mad about that. I, I, I don't want to dismiss the, the terror of, of, of something like Nazi Germany, but there is something uh, very terrifying about the kind of propaganda that happens in the United States where it's a, you don't necessarily get killed with a machine gun, or how, whatever means, but you can be dismissed. You, you can be uh, isolated. You can be uh, thought of as a bad person for thinking or uh, certain ways and uh, questioning certain things. And that's that's pretty pretty bad as that's quite bad as well and very controlling. And and so and and so people get concerned they're going to get fired or they're not going to be liked or whatever if they start questioning uh, or propagating ideas that are not of the accepted value. So uh, the reason I started to say this stuff was, was you started to talk about how people with disabilities may or may not be represented in film. Uh, I I I would say there's not a there's not a committee of anybody saying these people should or shouldn't be put into film. In fact, uh, you know, the, I'm I've become over the the years when I first when we we first shot Steve's film, there were no festivals or any kind of uh, movements certainly that I was aware of. I don't I really don't think there were any that had any kind of uh funding going towards uh, working with, uh, particularly in film, towards the arts uh, in film of people with disabilities. There are certain um, uh, festivals now that have to, to, to do with that, advocate it. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I, I, it would be hard for me to say that there has been a... Um, a conscious decision to exclude people uh, with disabilities in film. I think, though, the norm, uh, a lot of the norm of, uh, of filmmaking, which it, it's a slightly different subject matter, but 
people are often cast in films to be kind of uh, uh, romantic uh, fantasy figures. You know, it's common to have a, a you know a pretty girl and a handsome guy in some kind of romance love story that men can fantasize about the girl and the girl women can fantasize about the guy or whoever's fantasizing about whoever whatever but what i'm saying is is that the it, it, there's there's a a tradition of that even going back to verbalized storytelling um so i, I <laughs> what I'm trying to say is is that it it, ta- it can take a certain kind of thought process that's going into um, a questioning or um, a different realm of of uh, for lack of a better word art or thought that is. Uh, questioning those norms in general but i don't know that that's a i don't know that it's a propagandistic a conscious propagandistic element that's coming from kind of corporate uh, interests it's a it's a complicated subject matter and I'm, I'm sure it could be talked about for for hours but but that's my initial feeling about it i i'm sure i could get into a discussion with people that would be more informed about it than i am uh, that might have very different opinions, but that's that's kind of my initial thought about it. Yeah, I mean, one thing you were talking about there was questioning things, and before we get on to it is fine, everything's fine. Um, I think it's kind of prudent. You've been talking about this a bit recently about your involvement in Back to the Future, or, or more uh, importantly, I suppose your non-involvement <laughs> in the sequel. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I heard an interview recently with someone called Bob Gale, and he seemed to be at odds with you know. Could you basically tell us about you know? You, well, what, tell me what you heard. Was it, it was a recent interview with him? Yeah, it was a radio, and, like a radio interview where he was saying about uh, it was to do with money rather than yeah. you know um, integrity and all this kind of thing. And uh, whereas I've always thought it was due to the fact that you were asking questions to the uh, Zemeckis at the time. Well, Bob Bob Gale is a propagandist. Mm-hmm. And and he's very uh, I mean and I mean that in that he's he's a uh, again it's it's complicated but but he he he's you know he's written little pieces here and there about what some of his political interests are mm-hmm. and it's very evident that he he's an advocate of things like the wars going on in 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 the Middle East and. Um, now you could say that that just his 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 upbringing. He he may he may genuinely think that what's happening in those wars is is great, or maybe not. I mean that's the sense I get from reading some of his slightly political pieces he he's written. I do I do study him because he's made lies about me, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, he he doesn't 
you know, I mean, well, I mean, the main lie is there were the prosthetics that were applied to another actor's face based on the my face. Uh, they from, took a cast, didn't they, of your they face? They took the cast that was used from the original film to do the old age makeup, and then they essentially applied my features to another actor's face and interspliced a very small amount of footage from the original film in order to make... Uh, um, uh, fool people into believing I was in the film. So I have a, there is a lawsuit about this. Because of my lawsuit, there are rules in the Screen Actors Guild that make it so uh, this kind of thing can never ha- happen again. Well, producers and so I'm proud of that. Mm-hmm. Bob Gale, you know, he won't he won't talk about that. He his obvious he's try, he's attempted to obfuscate that he did he specifically and the, the other producers did something illegal by definition mm-hmm. and now he's he's trying to stand up as this like you know i don't know what a moral i don't know what you want to call it but he's coming from a place of of being a criminal essentially yeah. so i mean i mean i guess because he wrote back to the future people think oh well he's upstanding but he did something on record it's easily researchable he did something illegal and now he's making up these stories mm. about me about about money and asking for the same uh uh uh, fee is Michael J. Fox. It's it's as false as the prosthetics that were placed onto the the face of this other actor. <laughs> the, the guy is a, is a liar who is trying to uh, unbury himself from from having done something illegal. And I I, I won't stand for that. This is mm. particularly why I'm being outspoken because about it because I only heard about that now in these Blu-ray releases. He keeps kind of building his story up. Mm. I, I, I am sitting down and writing things. There's certain things that are, are in public record that, that are... Uh, um, the Things that he's saying and things that are in public record are in opposition to each other. So mm. I've got... I've got to, it's, it's kind of long and involved and a little bit co- complicated, but it's easily proven that the things that he's saying are not not accurate but i've got to sit down and write it out because it's not it is evil easily proven but it's it takes a little bit of doing but the, the that person is not telling the truth yeah and i mean um in terms of questioning things um Wait, so i'm curious though because i haven't heard this interview was he specifically talking about the things that i have been saying recently or or was it an older interview no it was a fairly recent one and i, oh. I think i think you were then on the show a few weeks later um I, oh. I, there's a youtube clip of it um I, when i was doing some research earlier oh the thing where I Oh, where I was on the Bean, Kevin, what, no, what is it Kevin called? and Bean show, is it, I think? I can't remember. Yeah. Well, actually, though, what I was reacting to was an interview he had done many years before. So is that the interview you're talking yeah, about? Yeah, that's the okay. one, yeah. No, I'd love to hear what he has to say in response if he mm. does. I, 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 my assumption, my assumption is that he'll, he'll make up new lies. Mm-hmm. That's what I believe he'll do. But I... I hope he'll just finally realize he's he's going to get himself in big trouble because he is lying. I'm not, mm-hmm. and that and I I mean I have a lot of ways of. There's a lot more I can I can talk about that I haven't talked about, uh, mm-hmm. but uh, but I, uh, I th- that guy that guy is. I, I think you know he he also hurt himself very badly mm. uh with having done what he did 
because if you look if you look at his career and part of why I think he has a lot against me is because of my lawsuit now I, this is this is just assumption I don't know this for sure but it was the year that my lawsuit happened I'm forgetting the exact year you you look at his IMDB page hmm. and he did not work as a writer on a corporately funded and distributed film ever again mm. after my lawsuit. And you look at the years leading up to it, he was working quite regularly. He was working with Steven Spielberg and Robert Zemeckis. And after it, never again. He did, he got, he, he directed a film that he wrote that he got, you know, like a limited liability kind of corporation together where I'm sure he got favors. And that was the last movie he ever did. That was a little bit after the lawsuit. Mm. But he never again was hired in the corporate uh, world. My assumption, I don't know this. I saw, I can't, it's not on the internet anymore, but I read an article where he was talking in an in, in, interview about all of the um, scripts that he had written that Steven Spielberg had bought up. But none of those scripts were ever produced. And I think... I don't, again, I don't know this. I think, you know, Steven Spielberg was personally named in the, the lawsuit, but Spielberg actually wasn't as involved. He's the most well-known because he's the most, essentially the most famous director there is. But he, and he had something to do with Back to the Future, but, you know, that was really, that was a Robert Zemeckis film, and Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale co-wrote it, and they had way more to do with what was actually going on than Steven Spielberg. But Steven Spielberg was named in the lawsuit for various reasons, and there were different entities that were part of the lawsuit, and I'm sure Steven Spielberg didn't like that. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure Sp Steven Spielberg said, why the hell did this happen? I'm sure he knew it was because, well, I mean, and Robert Zemeckis is another interesting topic, but I, I ended up working with Robert Zemeckis again in a very positive fashion in, in Beowulf. Mm -hmm. uh, Robert Zemeckis has never lied specifically in the way that Bob Gale has. If you listen to the things, what, what Robert Zemeckis says is, I asked for too much money, mm -hmm. which, you, you know, I could have asked for five cents, and they could have said that's too much money, mm. and 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 that essentially isn't a lie. Uh, there there was there was never an agreement on the on the salary. But Bob Gale has very specifically lied. He said things that are not true again about asking about for the same salary as Michael J. Fox. It's just that never ever came up. Mm. In in any case, uh, I. I Robert Zemeckis was already way, way successful. He didn't need, you know, certain kinds of help to be working within the corporate industry. But Bob Gale wasn't in that realm. I mean, he had done well just because he'd written Back to the Future and was nominated for that. So you would think he would write quite a bit. And but I, I have a feeling particularly Steven Spielberg, was not happy about what happened. And I have a feeling maybe the reason he bought up all those screenplays was specifically to make sure they didn't get made. Mm. Uh, I, I've heard many different things about Spielberg that you don't normally hear about him. And, uh, you know, he is obviously a powerful person. And uh, his image is of a real, you know, do-gooder. Mm. But uh, I don't know that that's necessarily as uh, actual <laughs> as one might think.
All right. I'm sure he controls his his image very, very, very carefully. Yeah. If you think if you think about it, you know, you don't really see Spielberg being interviewed or, or talking except for little little things like controlled. Um, uh, what, junkets in, and things junkets. like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, specifically things that are filmed for his own production. So he's the producer of his own media about him. Mm-hmm. So what what is the best description of that? But propaganda. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I I mean the real person. I don't I don't I mean I met him a few times. He was always nice to my face, but. Uh, I'm sure he's had not so nice things to say about me in the background, but I'm also not, I'm sure I'm not somebody he thinks about one way or another. It's like he might even realize that what was done was really messed up. And that's why I theorize that he probably is really mad at Bob Gale because Bob Gale was the architect essentially of this, maybe even more than Zemeckis for all I know. I mean, the both of them had to uh, collaborate and talk about it, but, but that had to, the concept of utilizing another actor with prosthetics had to be written into the screenplay. It was a concept that needed to be dealt with early on in the writing process. Mm-hmm. And uh, and this is ultimately why the uh, negotiations didn't work was because they 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 had written this into the idea. It it was something that they could do early on and they were very aggressive with their negotiations to make it an undesirable situation for me to be involved in. Mm. And that and that's why the the negotiation didn't happen, or it didn't come to. I I actually was willing uh, to be in the film. I I I had questions about it uh, early on when they approached me multiple times. Uh, but when I read the screenplay, there were interesting things about the character. But they were aggressively um, low, m- less than half of what the other uh, actors, who Tom Wilson, and Leah Thompson. Were, were were getting which would have been the fair negotiation but they didn't they didn't attempt to do a fair negotiation they wanted to do a negotiation that was making it apparent that they did not want me to be a part of the film uh because it was just it was it wasn't it wasn't uh associated with what would have been a, a proper uh offer for 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 the the, the part mm. yeah i mean yeah it's all uh it's it's it, it must just be the, the film's very loved, isn't it? But the, this subject does come up quite a lot, and um, it's, it's actually good to hear your side of the well, story. Well, the, re- the reason that the reason that I I only now have started talking about it specifically was because of this these lies that uh, Bob Gale was saying. I just mm. I'm not going to stand sit around for it. It's just yeah. the people believe that stuff. There's nothing I can do in terms of uh, visibility. Bob Gale has done this on these Blu-rays, where there are millions of people that listen to these things mm-hmm. and believe it. You know, that's how propaganda. That's how good a good propagandist works. They tell a big lie in a big way first, and then the other person who's been lied about has to kind of be on defense. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I'm in that negative position as it is, but whatever, it's the truth, and I'm going to tell it. Yeah. And if, if Bob Gale wants to continue his lies, like I say, there's, there's th- I've got to sit down, and I am doing some writing things about it, and I, it's a little bit complicated. I'm, it's not just that. I'm doing writing about some other stuff. I thought it would be something that would take a small amount of time, but I'm, I'm being 
pretty diligent about it. But uh, there, th- this stuff is easily uh, uh, the kind of the kind of lies that he's talking about are, are very easily in public record proven to be inconsistent. And uh, it's uh, anyhow I, I, enough enough about him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, one thing I wanted to talk to you about, and I'm really fascinated about this, is uh, your interest in the Czech Republic. And um, more interesting, more um, importantly, about some of the property you've bought there. Can you tell us yeah. kind of uh, what was it that kind of initially drew you to the Czech Republic? Well, I do have Czech heritage. At one point, uh, I I wanted to go to all of the areas where, when we talk about heritage, heritage, we're often talking about who our great grandparents are, because that's usually about as far back as our knowledge of what our heritage. So, I mean, some people know. Uh, with DNA testing, it's really interesting, you know, going back thousands of years. But as far as my great-grandparents go, uh, I had German, Swedish, English, and Czech heritage. And uh, actually, most a little bit more Czech than anything else in terms of great-grandparents. But um, So I wanted to go to all these different areas of the country that I had this great-grandparent heritage from and to see which people I seemed I looked the most like. Um, and one of the latter places that I went to, was, or the last of the four, was the Czech Republic, which is incredibly beautiful. It was not uh, bombed out as much in the World Wars One and Two the way much of Europe had been. And so there's incredible architectural integrity, and it was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which was the wealthiest empire for about 500 years in Europe. And, you know, Austria... Germany, portions of uh, Poland, or sorry, portions of Germany, portions of Poland, all of Austria, all of Hungary, all of the Czech lands uh, were were part of this in, uh, gigantic, uh, very wealthy uh, empire, and the uh, architectural integrity of that area is incredible. Uh, but certainly, Germany was incredibly bombed out in Poland. Uh, Austria was never there are portions of Austria that are built up specifically Vienna but the Czech lands were really really quite uh, quite architecturally endowed and uh, yet you know the last hundred years it's it was uh, there was World War one and then it was uh, under you know the German um, rule well all during the austro-hungarian Empire but then during World War two and then uh, then communism came in until finally 92 so it's really been uh, it's been sheltered away and not talked about and seen as much as some of other portions of uh, more Western Europe, but it's incredibly beautiful. And it was a good time for me to invest financially. I specifically was looking to buy property. I like to shoot my films on sets. And I realized after making Everything is Fine, I had invested the money that I made on the first Charlie's Angels film into the sets for shooting Steve's film, Everything is Fine. It's basically entirely shot on sets, and I like to shoot on sets, mm-hmm. but uh, we it was in a warehouse. I co-directed it with David Brothers, who built the beautiful sets in the film, and I had funded it, those sets with, uh, with the money, and kind of had the concept that I would be able to reutilize them on the other productions at some point, but the day we had to destroy all the sets the day after because David... 
had lost the lease on at the in the last month of while we were shooting, which was really you know disappointing, of course. Yeah, they're beautiful sets, aren't they? Especially yeah. the exterior sets, uh, fantastic. Yeah. The, the town set, I thought it was uh, yeah, it looked great. Yeah. yeah, I'm very proud of the whole production, uh, not just the content, the emotional catharsis that happens with the Steve. Stewart character, which is really ultimately the most important part, mm-hmm. but the the physical uh, beauty of the of the film and the uh, production value is uh, very high. Mm-hmm. So uh, I realized after that happened that if I wanted to continue shooting on sets, that I must own the property, because uh, when you when you fund self fund a film. You don't know exactly, or I, the way I've done it, I don't know exactly when I'm going to be able to shoot what next. For example, I shot last October. I was planning to shoot uh, more in spring, but I'm, 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 I worked on another film just now. I'm touring. I'm needing to make money in order to finance the next portion of the production. And it seems as though I'm going to be acting in something now that... Uh, I'll be in Mexico for much of the year, I believe, between um, now, well, after the tour here in the UK, uh, I'll be basically going straight to Mexico, and I'll be in Mexico for most of between now and September, and the person that I'm is shooting the film i'm not sure if he's able to shoot in september which might mean october which is over basically exactly a year later and that's if if I, I can shoot in october you know i when work comes along for me as an actor i have to take it mm-hmm. because that's how i make my living i don't make my living as a as a filmmaker with my tours that i kind of you know, I bring something in from that, it's, but it's not how I'm able to afford it. If I were just doing that, I would have, I would have, you know, gone bankrupt years ago. Uh, the way that I work, which does have to do with corporate work, is you know, that's how I do it. Uh, it's it, which is an interesting uh, element. Uh, you know that uh, I, I see that most, not all, but many. Uh, people working in creative uh, areas have some kind of job working corporately in one way or another, and then essentially subsidize their their creativity with that that corporate work. The popular term for it's one for them, one for me, isn't it? Sort of thing. I, I don't I don't put it that way because usually when you hear somebody say it in exactly that term, you you, you see it you see it written a lot. But usually when somebody's doing that, they'll say, okay, one for them, one for me. But they're working corporately consistently. Mm. Like, like one for them, if they were, if they were self-financing their project from the money that they were making as, a, as an actor, yes, John Cassavetes, definitely, he did that. But when John Cassavetes was working, I, I mean, he, he, he's definitely been a model for me in, in business. I, I think he's also a great filmmaker. Uh, but he, uh, he definitely was financing his films by acting in other people's uh, movies. Uh, there was a better distribution situation for art films in the 1970s, uh, which he 
from what I have researched, slowly got himself involved in in a positive way. But he was never making a huge amount of money. I think they were probably making a, a decent middle class uh, living, him and he and Jenna Rollins. But what they accomplished was so uh, fantastic. Mm. I mean, it's it's great what they did. But uh, usually what you see when people, uh, actors are saying, well, one for them, one for me, I would say it's, pretty much <laughs> all for them, yeah. meaning all for the corporations, because mm. unless somebody's self-financing, they're doing corporate, they're, get, they're getting financing corporately to make more corporate situations. Mm. Not always, not always. Every once in a while, somebody does do that genuinely, but it's, it's pretty rare, pretty mm. rare. Um, one thing uh, w with the uh, location that you've uh, the property you bought, um, I've heard that it's um, been used in some way by a film school locally or a college. Well, I that's that's not accurate. I mean, I, I there there's a lot of plans to uh, do a lot of different things with the chateau. It, it's an historical monument, and I would like to do a lot of different businesses uh, with it that would have to do with initially the main reason I bought it was for for my own productions that's that's the most important thing and it's taken I bought it a long time ago I think it's I now I think it's 10 years it's at least 9 years ago mm -hmm. I I changed my dollars over basically it was the year that I did the second Charlie's Angels film a Willard and another studio film all in a row that was still to date my best financial year I've ever had. I took mm -hmm. all of that money and put it straight into buying the Chateau. Mm -hmm. uh, I did it on, I changed my dollars over to the Czech crowns on the day the U.S. invaded Baghdad because I knew that the dollar was going to slightly go up that day and then it would fall continuously after that which it has <laughs> yeah. i think it was around 28 check crowns to the dollar on the day that i transferred and it's been as low as 12 check rounds to the dollar i think it's about 20 19 or 20 right now mm. but uh you know it's the, the been terrible for for mm. the for the u.s uh, uh currency that that these these terrible wars mm. but but in any case uh i uh it was a good investment financially. Just the amount that the dollar's fallen with what I put into to the the, uh, the the property overseas, it's it's maintained the value a higher value there than if I had had it in the U.S. But but in any case, um, there are other reasons it made sense. There there are much lower property taxes. If I owned the same value of property in the United States, I would no way would I be able to uh, afford it just by the, the taxes I would have to pay. Mm. Uh, but it's also quite uh, beautiful. And, I, and when I say that, many people go, oh, wow, that sounds great. I'm going to do that. And I would never, ever recommend anybody, and I'm particularly talking about people in the U.S., to do what I've done unless they're doing exactly what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. I don't regret what I've done, but it's an incredible amount of work. It is expensive, and it's... Uh, I knew it was a lifelong decision when I made it. It's not something you can really just turn back from. And it's uh, it's difficult. I mean, the amount of uh, 
uh, culture uh, shock I've experienced. There are differences, things that you just, I've grown up in a different culture with a different language, and mm-hmm. I've spent a significant amount of time in, in the Czech Republic. I am not integrated in that, that, that culture at all, essentially, or very, very little. Uh, but I, yes, it's true. There are attempts uh, to start to integrate into certain kinds of. There are some for-profit businesses I'm interested in. There's some not-for-profit in, uh, businesses I'm interested in. But all of them take a lot of a lot of time and thought and effort. And uh, there, uh, there's somebody I'm working with in the UK. I think you, you know mm-hmm. who's been been. Uh, uh, wanting to to help and uh, and he's a good fellow and uh, mm-hmm. anything's possible. I I I would like the idea of uh, doing things that are good for film and mm-hmm. good for film education and things that possibly uh, could be good for working with people with disabilities. I I do have interest in that for a lot of different reasons, mm-hmm. uh, but but these are. Uh, it's hard to know. I mean, economically, what what does and doesn't make sense. I I, I struggle with that all the time, and uh, it's uh, it's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot of doing. It's. Mm. Uh, uh, but I I don't have any for. I have not had any formal business with uh, any educational uh, uh, elements. I've had informal business, some of which has been. Uh, nice, and some things have been rather confusing. Uh, there was one thing that happened where somebody was supposed to be involved in the uh, the shooting of the film that was with a uh, I won't say what it was, but an educational system that didn't happen. You, one, it just ever makes it clear for me. I I just I can't. I've got to do everything essentially myself when I produce a film. I, I can really. It's very difficult to rely on on uh, anybody unless they're they're literally on the property helping mm. you. Those are the people you rely on. And I had great volunteers uh, that worked on the film. That's the only way I'm able to afford to do it. Mm-hmm. And there were I had about 17 people uh, the, that were staying at the chateau while we were in production for the 10-day shoot, and uh, they were amazing. They did a great job, and I'm very grateful to them. Those those are the people that genuinely helped me make the film. I mean, there are peripheral people that will help do things that, that, that help the film, but actually physically on the film. And 17 is not a lot making a feature film. That's actually a very small crew, but it's the space that I have in the chateau. I have 17 rooms so that people are able to sleep, which is, of course, a lot. Mm. Uh, but And it's, you know, nice and a relatively elegant uh, uh, surrounding for making a film. But it's still, it's a lot of work, a lot of hours. And mm-hmm. uh, I knew on the 10 days I didn't shoot the entire feature because I knew there it was the, my first time shooting there. And I I predicted there would be difficulties. I didn't know what they would be, but I've worked in Czech long enough to know things happen and there's communication difficulties and uh, the culture works differently there. And it's, uh, and of course there were, there were things that happened. And I'm very glad that I, I, I was careful with how I uh, did that production. I learned quite a bit and next production, I will utilize those things I learned and hopefully they'll be uh, 
those things will have been addressed and maybe only a few new things will <laughs> come up that I have to deal with. There's always something to deal with in film production. Oh, yeah, just, yeah. That is <laughs> things just, they happen. Yeah. You're working with people, you're working with sets, you're working with actors and uh, it's just, it's a lot. But I, I do, I do ultimately like it. Production is not my favorite part of the filmmaking. My favorite part of filmmaking is editing. Production's like war. Yeah. And editing is like the peace process where yeah. you're making everything. <laughs> That's really good way of putting it, actually. Yes, <laughs> it is. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Um, one thing just before, because I've had you for on the phone for quite a while now, and I'm, you know, I don't want to <laughs> use up all your day. Oh, it's all right. Um, I've obviously last night I got. Uh, three of your books and oh, I was good. very quickly if we could uh, just have a quick chat about the books as well sure. because i think they're, yeah. they're fantastic can you t um talk about uh kind of some of the inspiration that goes behind them and also the the, the production because they're beautiful volumes aren't they i mean they're very lovely you know they're lovely volumes <laughs> yeah I, i'm proud of the books as well mm -hmm. and and it's funny to me because the uh the books uh a lot of the same energy that went into making the books when I was in, you know, in, in the eighties and early nineties, really that transferred into making the, the films, even though it seems very different on some level for me, energy wise, it's, it's the same creative, uh, and, um, I talk about editing and the finishing source. There's something related to, to them about me. More specifically, what is it is uh, even thematically has to do with some of the books that I perform in the shows. Sometimes people have pointed things out about the content, thematic content in some of the books or specific content in the books that I didn't even realize. And they realized, oh, yeah, they're right. They'll, they'll say it at a show. Um, and I hadn't even thought about it, which to me is a, a good sign. It means that there's something subconsciously being expressed that I wasn't even aware was happening, mm. which to me, that, that is when good, good art happens. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm proud of the books. Uh, I, I remember when I first started publishing, uh, and through my company, Volcanic Eruptions is my, my book publishing company's name. And uh, I, I remember I was thinking I would use a slogan of, uh, I'd never used it, but uh, uh, volcanic eruptions where we believe you can tell a good book by its cover <laughs> because the books are nicely bound. Mm. And, uh, and part of the, the aesthetic of the entire book is, the, is part of what, is, is, uh, what I would consider a nice, a nice element about it. Mm -hmm. Of course, the famous thing is you can't tell a book by its cover, but sometimes, sometimes you can if it's just a pretty book. Yeah. And, of course, and I do think the books are pretty, uh, but there's interesting content, of course, as well. Mm. Uh, there seems to be a theme with uh, a few of your books where you've taken older text and kind of reimagined it, kind of repurposed it almost. Yeah, the way that it came about, uh, I mean, I, the books were done in a lot of different ways, but the very, very, very first book I ever made, which I haven't published or put in the, the shows, it was called Billow in the Rock. I, um, I was in an acting class uh, when I was, well, I, was, I studied acting from 15 till age 20, but the, uh, an acting class I went for two years, 19 and age 19 and 20, uh, it was, uh, uh, you know, in the 80s. Uh, on La Brea in uh, Los Angeles and down the street on the same block was an art uh, gallery that had a book 
art bookstore upstairs and there was a small section that had artists' handmade books. And somebody, there were a lot of different kinds. Uh, some were just like art objects. Well, some person had taken an old binding from the 1800s and they put their artwork in it. And I thought that was a good idea. And I'd always drawn and, and written uh, from a young age. And I was working a lot with Indie Ink at the time and I decided I would do the same thing. And I, I went to a bookstore on Melrose. I think it's still there. Uh, many of the books I used to get books at, old bookstores are, are not around anymore, but I think that one's there. In any case, I found a binding called Bill in the Rock, and uh, I found some other books that had some interesting illustrations, and I um, started putting my own artwork in in this book. And I always had liked words in art, and so I left a few words on one page, and then I did some other art and put some other India ink things, uh, artwork in it. And then uh, a few pages later, I left a few more words and had left, gotten rid of the other words with India ink. And when I was reviewing it, I started realizing there was a new narrative, a new story that was taking place, and I liked it. So I kind of went with that and was putting illustrations in. And when I finished the whole thing, I was I really liked it. And I showed it to people and they thought it was really interesting and I liked doing it. So I kept making more of them. Mm. And altogether I made about 20 of them uh, from the uh, early 80s to the early 90s for about 10 years. And uh, I miss I miss making the books. I, I, I did make one book relatively recently as I was developing the second slideshow, because I have two different slideshows. I have one that I developed to start performing before everything is fine, and then the original slideshow, which I performed before What Is It? Uh, the first slideshow, the very first time I ever performed it was in 93, before I had What Is It? Uh, before I'd even started shooting, what is it? And it, it immediately, the eight books that I chose, it w went perfectly. Like it was, people wanted to start booking it. It was, people liked it. Uh, I've always performed that show exactly the same. As I did, started developing a new show for the second film, that one was, because I had selected the books that were right for performing. Some of the books that I made uh, were either way too wordy or they they worked on different levels than a perform a book to perform would be. Some of them were just art objects essentially, and uh, so I had chosen maybe the, probably the best ones to perform for the first slideshow. So I had to deal with a new structure and new. Uh, book slideshow and I included some books that I hadn't had in the show that didn't really perform as well some of the first times I started performing that show and I had had one series of images that I'd saved in a drawer and uh, art that I had done that I had conceptualized realizing it could be a good performance book it was the only time I ever developed a book for the idea of the performance. The other books were specifically made as books, uh, but this one uh, was made, and it's the only book I didn't actually make as a physical book. I, I scanned it into uh, 
the computer and then uh, made the slideshow of it. it. It does not exist as a book at this mm-hmm. point, but it works very well as a uh, performance piece in the show. And in a certain way, it's almost even more effective than any of the, the books that are in the first show. So the two, the two slideshows now are very, uh, once I started performing that new book, uh, which I was glad of that a new book that I made actually worked because I hadn't made a new book in a long, long time. And now if I start touring, I'd start with the new movie, the, which is not part three of the trilogy, but the one for myself and my father to act in together, which is the first time he and I have ever acted together. It was just this last October. This was a project I specifically developed uh, for for that to happen. And... Um, If I tour with that in the same way I have been, which seems likely, uh, I'll have to develop a whole new, some kind of show, which I haven't figured out yet. I've got to finish that film first. Mm -hmm. Uh, But... uh, yeah, the books. I you know I, I almost look at it as a uh, a letter to myself from me as a younger person to me now, mm. uh, and I'm uh, glad that I I had I had no concept that this would be as important a part of my life as it is because uh, it was something I just did for my own enjoyment and to show to friends. I had no idea I would publish them. I had no idea that I would be touring with them, performing them. It was just that was not what I was thinking about at all. So it's fascinating to me that it's uh, become such an integral part of my, my life. Mm. Uh, one of the which, you... which is one of my favorite things. You know, Joseph mm-hmm. Campbell, I love, I stor- stu- study Hero's Journey story structure all the time. Uh, one of my favorite subjects uh, and Hero's Journey story structure coming from Joseph Campbell's great 1948 book, Hero with a Thousand Faces, where he recognized he was friends with Jung, and of course Jung was friends with Freud, and they were all interested in the human subconscious and uh, coming at it from different ways. And what Joseph Campbell realized was a certain pattern that was happening in in various mythologies around the world, that there are archetypes of uh, characters and structure, story structural elements that uh, it's very valuable for uh, for writing, um, but he said something uh, also, which uh, is been something people will talk about now. Uh, call it where he said, "Follow your bliss," which I think is just a tremendous piece of advice. Uh, basically, follow that which you're passionate about, mm. and that I think is, uh, you know, as opposed to following something that is going you you feel like you need to do in order to make money follow follow the thing that you really are passionate about and essentially that that money will will follow because follow it because you have so much more energy to put in that into that which you're passionate about i mean you know i've essentially recouped on the films in, in year 6 of touring which is a long time. Yeah. Uh, but even when I say I recouped, the way I really recouped was 50% by that which I make by the live performance, 25% by the book sales, and 25% by the box office, which would mean if I were to really recoup just by the box office of the films, it would take about 24 years of touring. Mm. But I, that, I, I never cared about that. I still don't care about that. All I cared about was that I could justify to be able to put money again into 
into another production so I could continue making a, my own films. And mm-hmm. I've, I've, I've justified that. So that's all that mattered to me. Uh, but it's a good example of following that which you're passionate about because I have so much more energy. You know, this is this is a lot of work, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I, I and, it you know, it does affect my my personal life, my how my whole existence is mm-hmm. but uh but that's okay i i i i want to to do these things i i don't mean to complain because it, i worked very hard to get to the position where i'm working very hard mm-hmm. to uh distri- self distribute the films and show them to people and uh but it's worth it i i'm i'm very glad to do it and 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 i'm very grateful to the people that come and and get something out of the shows yeah and then people definitely do um and last yeah. Night, yeah i mean last night you know people were you know buzzing afterwards they, they were you know everyone really appreciated you coming down to the, you know to coming down here to the uk to yeah <laughs> to show the films and yeah you know. and i i like coming to places that people don't expect me to be as well because uh there's even more gratefulness really mm-hmm. uh, and excitement and that's that that you can feel that and it's uh, it's 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 terrific yeah and um, just very, one last very quick point on the books um uh, we had a listener um who and also I'm a personal fan of this particular work um uh, what it is and how it is done um, yeah. is that released in any form or is that just part of the live show at the moment there there was a um a performance. That's the only time I've let the uh, any any kind of performance be um, recorded. I uh, I was on the Dennis Miller show in the I think it was very early nineties, mm-hmm. and I performed that book. And we, you know, it was carefully uh, kind of uh, directed. I don't perform the book in the show in the same way that I performed it on. In the live show, I don't perform it in the same way that I did when I performed it on the Dennis Miller show. Mm. It, even then, it wasn't the way I normally performed it. But but, but it's okay. I I was aware, even then, that it was good to have one little piece of something that people would be able to kind of go, oh, I I, I see. And that is, you can find that on on the internet. Uh, but like I say, it's it's different in in certain ways from how I actually perform the the piece. But uh, I had published it at one point in an amalgamation of three different um, books under one title, What It Is and How It Is Done. That book is no longer in print. And I I worked with a... uh, printer at one point who was not good and he lost negatives of the of that initial um printing which is really unprofessional as you can imagine Uh, my other negatives were with for my other books were with different people i still have most of the original artwork there's one thing that i don't have which really irritates me but i can I can I can get I can still get a copy of it from the original printings of the book. I don't love that I don't have the initial thing. Uh, I don't know where what happened to that. Uh, but in any case, um, I do need to reprint that book because it's actually quite a good book. But I probably when I reprint it, I would do it in a different way. I had a, I had three titles under one book. I had a son of mother. What is it? And. Uh, uh, a book called *The Betrothed*, uh, 
but I, I need, I, it's probably better for me to keep them separate. It had something to do with page count as well. And because they're hardbound books, there is a certain amount of thickness that a hardbound book needs just to be able to physically bind it. Mm-hmm. So I have to investigate it a little more. But there's another book that I really want to publish called Round My House, which was always the first book I wanted to publish, but it was a color book. It's probably my favorite book, which is one that doesn't use really very any any text from the original book. It's essentially a, ha- a handwritten book, and I I'm very happy with the structure. It's probably the best one for me to uh, for for me personally as a performer uh, for the for the shows. Mm. And uh, I need to publish that book. I had done all of the boards. I was almost done with the boards last year, and I I lost my computer on a train that I fell asleep on in Penn Station. I woke up, and I was at the station. I got off the train. I didn't realize until later that night I'd had the computer out, and I never got it back. And I lost those boards. A couple of other things I lost as well, very awful, that were not backed up. Hmm. Anyhow, I need to I need to publish that book. I need to publish a number of things, but my money is often tied up in my my films, and that's the case right now. Uh, so it's uh, you know it's uh, it's a juggling act. I, yeah. I I need to I need to act in other people's films, and that of course takes time, uh, hmm. which is fine. I'm glad to be doing it, uh, and then I need to go in and make my own films and yeah. tour. It's it's. Uh, I used to have a lot more time. I I, I don't don't anymore. I, it's I, I wish I did. It's funny <laughs> because I I wanted a long time ago. I wanted to be doing more things. I I you know I I'm uh, getting older too. I I just turned fifty, mm-hmm. and uh, there are things that you can feel from that, uh, but uh, it's. Uh, I, I, you know, when I was maybe 25, it would have been easier for me to tour as much as I do. Mm. And again, you know, I, I like touring, but I can feel it on, on my body. I get, I get quite exhausted from, from the tours. I was talking to Henry Rollins a few years ago, um, who tours extensively as well, um, yeah. doing spoken word tours. And he was saying exactly the same thing that he loves to tour, but he's starting to find it more and more, uh, you, you know, you don't kind of recover as quickly as you used to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah, it's an interesting thing about Henry Rollins, because I, uh, initially, when uh, the book, when I, my first book that I published was Rat Catching, mm-hmm. and there was a woman who used to publish uh, Henry Rollins' books you know he pu- he pub- he self publishes his books as well mm-hmm. uh but he initially was working with a woman named uh, Laura Cloud she she's no longer uh, alive but um she was who I was originally she she worked with people that were well known for one thing or another and uh, she initially worked with him and then I knew somebody else that knew him and uh, I was initially going to work with her, but she did uh, something wrong with the boards, and I just realized I needed to do it on my own. Uh, but so there's, uh, I was aware that Henry Rollins uh, did well with his uh, book sales by, by uh, doing essentially book readings, live book readings. So I'd see, I went and saw some of his shows uh, as a, a live performer, and that was something that I was uh, aware of uh, when I, before I started touring with my shows. And so I, I know him from, 
from from the eighties from that 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 specific situation having to do with the book publishing. Anyway, thank you so much for giving us some of your time. Yeah, um, I really appreciate it. It's something. It's been a long time coming. I've uh, been leading up to getting you on. I'm a, I'm a huge, uh, huge admirer of your work, and I think you're a true, you know, true artist. And it's a pl- real pleasure to have you, you know, on the show. Thank you. I, I, I appreciate it. I'm in a hotel, and I think somebody's knocking on the door about housekeeping. Maybe oh, okay. Do not disturb <laughs> sign here. But uh, yeah, and people, if they want to know about the uh, the shows and films. Uh, they can uh, go on to sign up for the newsletter on crispinglover.com. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is, uh, uh, it has a, a list of where all my, my shows and tours are. And uh, there's also an official Crispin Helen Glover Facebook page and a Crispin Glover Twitter uh, as well. But the best way to know is by signing up uh, on the newsletter. And they can just look and see what's going on, but they'll be reminded by many emails, sometimes too many probably for some people. And that's why the Twitter and Facebook are valuable as well. Uh, yeah, excellent. Well, um, we'll also post all. We're going to get this into you up as quickly as possible, and we'll post all the tour dates um, for the rest of your UK tour. Yeah, but, uh, do stay in touch, and you know, it'd be, it'd be great to have you back on again at some point. And, Absolutely, uh, it's fantastic. I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Crispin. That's great. All right, you too. All right, all right. Have a great day. the return of a tad dank or myspace heroes or um soundcloud specimens all of these references will be meaningless to the average listener because uh sitting now radio hasn't been around for that's part of three well, over three years but to those loyal hardcore followers uh, that might mean something anyway because you've been listening to crispin glover for about an hour or so we've deemed that you need a musical interlude and so Coming up, I've put together for you the delightful Apostrophic, followed by Dead Rider, and then after that it'll be Benjamin Shaw. I hope you enjoy it, and if you don't, please feel free to complain to ken at sittingnow.co.uk. Enjoy.
Oh, the car. 
Whoa! God, I haven't heard that sort of uh, crazy music in a while, Kim. Uh, uh, how did you come? Yeah, how did you think to piece those genius bits of music together? Um, I've got a team of consultants. Uh, I've been I've been farming all of those sort of decisions out to other people for a while now. I've got no real interest in music. So you're just outsourcing your interests, is what you're saying? Oh yeah, I outsource all my hobbies, uh, <laughs> along with everything else I have to do. Yeah. It frees me up with a lot of time to do absolutely fucking nothing. And, does, and do they uh, do these these uh, outsources? Do they streamline only the, the the most quality of content for you? I don't know. I've no, <laughs> I don't pay any attention to what it is they produce. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm I'm here to fill 15 minutes, and that's what I presumably have done. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Excellent. Um, so thanks to Crispin. Glover for uh, giving us the interview. Um, it's a great way to start the show off again. And like I was saying earlier, you know, we we got lucky when we started the show the first time round all those years ago. We got you know Trace Spirits and uh, Ivan Stang and all these people right up right up front. So it's really good to be sort of starting back off again with the same quality of guest that we uh, you know used to attract on the on this show. Um, I'm going to try and do these shows at least 
once every three weeks, I'd say, at the very least. They might come more currently than that, but I'm not going to commit to doing a weekly show with this anymore and um, because it's just not going to happen. <laughs> it involves reading an entire book sometimes. And that's just, you know, that's crazy talk. I mean, Kim, Kim goes years without reading anything. Uh, yeah, or doing anything of any use. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, you can't expect us to read lots of books and, and also, you know, sort of keep up the same kind of social life we have where we're often at, you know, big hip parties and. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, we, we've talked about this before that we've got into it for the girls and after the success, that's really our, our main focus now. It's got to be the girls, hasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, and, uh, and let me tell you, there's a lot of girls, um, you know, but so frankly i'm getting bored of women kim so it's good that you're around um we can we can talk about that further <laughs> maybe oh. off, maybe off the show but anyway maybe, uh, maybe separately as well <laughs> yeah <laughs> a, new, a new podcast <laughs> uh, but yeah so yeah uh, thanks to crispin for coming on um he, he was uh, he put on a fantastic show and we're going to put up the the remaining tour dates he's here for quite a while and there's quite big gaps between his shows so there's yeah, there's still gonna be plenty of time to see him in the country if you you know if, he's, if you fancy going to see him i do recommend it it's a long show um he packs a lot in so it, it literally starts off with uh, a, he reads <clears throat> like i said in the show he reads about eight books um and they're kind of these dramatic readings they're really funny and really kind of interesting and uh, they're great um and then he shows uh, one or two films then does a really long q a afterwards and then you get the chance to hang out with him afterwards and get a book signed and it's a really great way of uh I think you know it's, it's maybe the future. Even though, even though it's like the old way of promoting your product, it's kind of the future way of promoting a product. I think, and it's uh, it's really good. I wish more artists would do it. It'd be quite good to you know meet these people and kind of break down the barrier between them and us. Would you not between agree, Kim? The famous star types and us muddy plebs. Exactly. Um, um, of course, sadly, I can't go and see him because he has done what uh, many wise artists do and he's given Birmingham a wide berth <laughs> well you know he expects you to travel Kim um, uh, uh, outside of Birmingham <laughs> <laughs> the new um, road <laughs> black, once, once they discovered Black Sabbath that was it they were done here it's they, true. Don't need, they don't need anything else and Stuart Lee of course but uh, yes so anyway um rambling aside you can of course if you've come back just for this show because you you were like oh, i got so sick of all their other shows um and i just like the interview show you can find us weekly ish um on the same website sittingnow.co.uk uh, on our weekly ish show uh, coincidence control network uh, kim and i still do behind closed doors um so if you like kind of oddball music and uh you know, it's like something a bit different. Check that out. Uh, after five years, after five years of doing it, it seems to be picking up a, bit, uh, a few listeners now. We, we must be up to the five or ten people that have commented over that period. I know it's it's, it's cool. Uh, and you, Kim, you do your own spin-off show, don't you? Behind closed doors. Yeah, but that is we keep that in the cupboard under the stairs, don't we? Yeah, I mean that's uh, it's like uh, it's like it's like Daddy's gone off on business for three months and come back with a with a sort of uh, child mistake yeah it's like dressing up it's like dressing up a dog as a pilot yeah yeah exactly you, yeah you know what I mean yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah I, I've already got the next interview in the works um, 
it's going to be a cool one. It's a returning guest, which we and it's one that Kim I know is very fond of, so he'll uh, he'll want to be involved in that. So I'm hoping we'll have that done within a couple of weeks. So maybe sooner. So hopefully we'll see you soon. If not, check out you know keep up with our other podcasts. Check out sittingnow.co.uk. Check out Kim's musical releases at daddytank.co.uk. You can find us on Twitter at sittingnow. Uh, Facebook, um, I, it's just right where you're sitting now, like the site. Uh, Kim, any other plugs you want to put in? <laughs> Only one kind of plug I'm interested in putting in right now. <laughs> we'll pull it out in your case. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, yeah, uh, we'll see you soon. And thanks for listening. And it's good to be back. <laughs>